0: And once again, good morning. Good to see you. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Chapter 6? Now, last week in our study of the Gospel of John, we started Chapter 6 and began a two-part study, which we entitled, Sent into the Storm. The scripture we're studying is John 6, verses 15 to 21, and the parallel passage in Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. In fact, you might want to turn there while we're introducing this study. Let me quickly sketch out the background. The Lord and His disciples had come to the end of a very long and hard day of ministry. It had started with them wanting to get away and spend a little time on vacation, just having a little rest and relaxation because the disciples had come back from a preaching uh, tour that the the Lord sent them on. And uh, they were just kind of exhausted and they had nowhere to go to get any privacy. So he directed them. They were in Capernaum, the area there, uh, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Let's get into a boat and we'll cross over to the northeast side where Bethsaida is. There's a rural area we can go and have some private time. And so they did. But unfortunately, the multitudes saw what they were doing, and they ran around the northern end of the Sea of Galilee and got to Bethsaida before Jesus and his disciples. Now, you would think that the Lord would have been a little cross, a little irritated for not for the crowds not respecting his space. Of course, that wasn't the case with the, our Lord Jesus Christ. He had compassion on them. And so he ministered all day, he and his disciples. He taught them uh, he no doubt healed the sick and cast out many demons. And then, as it was getting late and the people had eaten all day, you remember the stories we studied it last time, um, about fifteen to 20,000 people were there. And so uh, they really had no food to give these folks, not enough money to buy it, that kind of a, a crowd, uh, something to eat. And so the Lord shocked the disciples and said, look, you give them something to eat. And they said, well, how are we going to do that? There's a kid here with a sack lunch five barley biscuits and a couple of sardines but what is that to so many? Bring them here. So the Lord blessed the food and uh, he began to distribute it and the hands that made everything as he touched that food it just kept multiplying and he kept filling baskets and they kept going out into the crowds giving people food. They were all glutted it said and they gathered up twelve baskets full of fragments one basket for each of the twelve. Apostles who doubted that, you know, Lord, we've seen you do some spectacular things, but not even you can handle this. Oh, really? Okay, uh, let's see. And so we studied that, right? And um, Matthew 14, verse 22, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, so back towards Capernaum, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed. The Greek is tortured. It was quite a storm. Uh, they were about four miles from shore, right in the middle of the uh, Sea of Galilee. So, uh, you know, four miles in front of them, four miles behind, right in the middle there. And uh, the waves, it says in the wind, were contrary. So much so that these seasoned fishermen were terrified. Uh, at uh, this storm and um, again while they were going through this horrific storm jesus was up on a on a high mount overlooking the sea of galilee john tells us that it was passover time which meant there was a full moon out because passover only took place at the time of the full moon mark tells us because we're we're piecing all these together from the various gospels Mark tells us that from where Jesus was sitting on the mountain, he could see his disciples struggling on the Sea of Galilee in the moonlight. Remember now, this was not a thunderstorm with clouds and rain, it was a windstorm. And so the wind did not block out the moonlight, and we know from the Gospels Jesus was watching them struggling on the Sea of Galilee that night. Matthew tells us he was up on the mount praying for them, praying, but no doubt for them, Okay. He ever lives to make intercession for us. We know that. And so um, here we see the disciples fighting for their lives on the Sea of Galilee while Jesus is up in the mountain watching the whole thing unfold. You say, well, that, that sounds kind of cruel. No, it was a uh, a test, as we're going to see in a moment. But here's something to think about. As we brought the question up last week, did Jesus know the storm was coming when he sent his disciples out onto the Sea of Galilee? And the answer to that is absolutely he knew. Of course he knew. Of course he knew. Which means he deliberately sent them into the storm. Which begs the question, why would God send his children into storms? Now, guys, the storm, they face a literal storm. The storms we're talking about are allegorical. And they could be any trial, tribulation, problem, adversity, or painful circumstance that we find ourselves battling in life. Those become the storms of life. These storms often hit us suddenly and without warning. Things are going along fine, everything is well, everybody is healthy, and all of a sudden you get bad news. You've been laid off, or the doctor's report came back and it's not good, or something. right? These storms often hit suddenly without warning, just like the storm that hit the disciples in the Sea of Galilee that evening. Now listen to me. We have to introduce this subject carefully. Um, sometimes these storms are the result of another's pers- uh, another person's disobedience towards God that winds up sweeping you into the storm that God has brought upon their life. What do I mean? Well, we're going to talk about Jonah in a second. The guys on the ship, the sailors and all, on the ship that Jonah uh, embarked on, and God brought the storm uh, upon that ship because of Jonah's disobedience. They were all brought along with Jonah. They, since they were with Jonah, they went along for the ride, right? storm wasn't their fault, uh, as we're going to see, but they were at that moment connected to Jonah. I think of Noah and his family who went through the worst storm this world has ever seen. We call it the flood, Right? But the windows of heaven were open and the fountains of the deep were broken up. And this was quite a storm. They were tossed on the angry waters of that flood. But they were in that ark going through this storm, not through any sin or fault of their own. They were on the ark and going through this storm because of the wickedness of all around them. Sometimes it's not because of your doing you find yourself going through a storm, but because you're connected to your spouse. And they're an alcoholic or a drug addict or something else. And so the storm that they are going through, you are going through with them or as a parent. If you have a wayward teenager, it's a lot of uh, parents that have teenagers that are wayward and gotten into drugs and things and your heart is breaking and the whole family is swept into this volatile storm because of a teenager that at this point in his or her life um, is going down a bad road, um, making some bad decisions. So you pray like crazy as a parent, but you are in that storm as much as they are. I think most of the storms that come upon our lives come upon us because of our own rebellion. Uh, A lot of the storms that we face in life are are the result of our own making, really. Uh, You know, they're the consequences of disobedience uh, to what God has said. And that happens a lot, but not always. Many times, these storms of life uh, are no one's fault, really. There's simply the sovereignty of God at work in our lives wanting to accomplish his purposes. Now, last time, guys, we said that uh, we've we've divided actually uh, John 6, verses 15 to 21 into two main parts. The last one we looked at last week, we called it a lesson in the perfection of faith. If you weren't here, you can go online, listen to it. A lesson in the perfection of faith. And this morning, we want to finish this little two-part series by looking at that second main point, which we're calling a look at the purpose of storms. A look at the purpose of storms. As we read our Bibles, we discover that there are four basic kinds of storms that God will send us into for His purposes. They are storms of correction, storms of perfection, storms of direction, and then storms of preparation. Let's look at the first one. He sends us into the storm to give us necessary Correction. Turn to Jonah chapter 1, Jonah 1, starting with the verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. It's amazing how low a person can sink when they're running from God. Do you get the language? The Holy Spirit put it in pocket. He went down. He went down. He went down. You know, I've seen people go way down until there's nowhere to go but up. Sometimes people have to crash to the very bottom before they look up and say, God, I'm ready. I'm ready. Jonah ran from God, um, and God had to bring a storm into his life to get him to repent and to start obeying him. Now, the, the background was God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And warned the Ninevites that they didn't repent immediately. Very wicked uh, people. They didn't repent immediately uh, from their sin. They would be judged for their wickedness. Well, Jonah didn't want to do that. He hated the Ninevites. Why? Because they were Assyrians. In fact, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. You know what Nineveh is today? Mosul. When you re- look at the news and you hear about Mosul in Iraq, that's in fact they even call themselves uh, call the town Nineveh still in some parts. But Jonah didn't want to go down to the Ninevites and preach a message of repentance and all because he wanted God to blast them. These were brutal people. And when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., what they did to these poor Jews and anybody they conquered was absolutely heartless and and cruel. They were just brutal people. And... Um, so Jonah wanted God, he wanted them, I don't want them to repent, Lord. I want you to get them. You know, blast them, okay? And so he gets into a ship and goes in the opposite direction. Now, God sent a storm to chasten and correct Jonah for his disobedience. And you, you all know the story. And so God sends this storm, and the sailors don't know what's going on. They're terrified. They're starting to throw everything out of the boat to lighten the load. And they're praying to their pagan gods and, and, and all. And they go down into the hull of the ship, and there's Jonah fast asleep. And so they said to him, well, what do you mean by this, you sleeper? Get up and, and call on your God to, to deliver us and have mercy. So Jonah said, look, I don't have to pray about this. I know what the problem is. It's me. Throw me overboard and the storm will stop. Oh, man, I, we don't want to do that. You know, if you don't throw me overboard, the storm, you're, you're going to get wiped out. And so they, after a while that we had no choice, threw him overboard, right? Storm stopped, okay? Well, God had prepared, you know, first submarine ride. For Jonah, gets swallowed by a big whale, right, which takes him uh, on a three-day journey to the shores where, uh, you know, a person would would go to to actually walk to Nineveh. Nineveh was not on the shore there, but uh, so the whale comes and regurgitates Jonah up onto the shore, right? Three days now, three days in a whale's belly. You can imagine what he must have looked like. The gastric juices in the whale's belly had dissolved all the hair in his body, bleached the skin white. Plus, he's got seaweed hanging off his head, probably. So he comes walking into town, looking like that, and says, repent. What would you do? I think I'd repent. And they did. And Jonah was not happy about it. He went outside of town and pouted under a tree. And you can read the story, what God said to him. But look, sometimes if we continually continually refuse to do what God has told us to do in his word, you know, God's gracious, God's kind, and he's, you know, he's trying to, to gently get our attention, to gently, you know, he doesn't want to really blast us. Uh, he will if he has to. And sometimes he has to because we're just so hard-hearted and we're not repenting. And so he brings one of these storms into our life, fill in the blank, to force us to listen, change course, and start moving in the direction of obedience. And again, that storm can take a number of different forms. Um, The loss of a job, uh, the loss of a relationship, a sickness of some kind. Uh, You can fill in the blank. Understand one thing. When it comes to the storms that we face as children of God, they are never punitive. They are always corrective. Punitive speaks of judgment. Those of us who are believers have passed from judgment into a relationship with God where now there is no longer any judgment that he puts upon it. He will chasten us. That's discipline. Any loving parent will discipline a child. Why? To bring the child back into a place of obedience that the parents can bless the child again. You know, I mean, when my kids were little, and they never disobeyed, but they were perfect, but when they were little, if they ever did, okay, give us a problem and disobey they they were always going to be my kids. i never say what that's it you're out of the family (laughs) no i mean you know they were always going to be our kids right but we couldn't take them out for ice cream couldn't bless them if they were being rebellious so the whole point is i want to take them out for ice cream i want to bless my kids that's a parent's heart you think god the father's any different and so he will do things only as much as he has to to bring us back to a place of you know, correctness, obedience, so he can pour his blessings upon us again. That's the heart of our God, right? But, but these are disciplinary things. Not you know, you know, None of these storms we face um, are done out of anger. It's always out of a heart of love for us. That's how God deals with us. You remember Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. The writer says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons and daughters. My son, do not despise the chastening discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. I like what David said in Psalm 119. He said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. I, I, I walked away from God and got into sin. But now I keep your word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. God disciplines us to teach us, to correct us, because he loves us. If you find yourself this morning going through a protracted storm, where, you know, for just the longest time, things haven't been right. Nothing's going right. Nothing is working out. There seems to be one problem after another. And you've prayed and prayed, and you're still going through it. Look, Take spiritual inventory of your life to make sure that you're not being chastened by God for some area of disobedience. Now, look, I was telling first service, you're not going to have to look that hard, okay? <laughs> we know. We know when we are, you know, you know not living right. Um, but sometimes it could be something like resentment that we've internalized and have actually forgotten it's there, but God sees it. And God wants you to forgive and let go of that. And so he's trying to get a hold of you and that kind of thing, okay? Um, I'm trying to correct you. Okay, so the first point, he sends us into the storm to give us necessary correction. Number two, he sends us into the storm to further our perfection. And for this, I'll just read to you James 1, verses 2 to 4. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its, listen, perfect work. Let it perfect you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's talking about your faith, okay? This as we studied last week, I believe was the kind of storm the disciples found themselves in on the Sea of Galilee that night. It was designed to perfect their faith. You can check out last week's message online. But as we said, we are now in the final year of Jesus' life before the cross. And already he's transitioning away from public ministry more and more to focus all of his time and energy on his disciples because in a few months, you know, they're going to be taking over the ministry. He's going to go to the cross, he's going to rise from the dead, and then he's going to ascend back to his father, and they're going to be responsible now to carry on the ministry he began. So he's got to start building into them. This is like a uh, the uh, the training program now is ramping up because the deadline is approaching for when Jesus is going to be taken away from them. And so well, we studied this last week, how that he was putting through them through one test after another to strengthen and build their faith. Now, with this test, he had sent them out into the storm, okay, knowing, knowing what was coming, of course, as we said. And when they got about four miles out, halfway across the Sea of Galilee, think about it. The Lord waited till they were exactly in the middle, where they were as far from land as they were going to be, right, in front and back. And He waited till they were out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, where they had been struggling for I don't know six to eight hours. Um, they were they were tired, exhausted. Uh, they were uh, discouraged in the sense that they had really probably almost given up all hope of ever getting through this storm alive. And again, Jesus was testing them, though, to ultimately build their faith. And remember this. God wants to build our faith in him, not our resourcefulness or faith in ourselves. And that's often why he waits for us to come to the end of ourselves. But we have no other recourse. We're we're exhausted. We're out of options. That's when he moves because he wants to get the glory. Glory. When I'm weak, Paul said, then I'm strong. When I know it's not me. When, when I've exhausted all my energy and all my options, and now I'm completely helpless, and without God's intervention, hopeless, that's when he often works. Because he doesn't want to build our faith in our own resourcefulness. He wants us to be our faith to be built in his strength and power, right? Now listen. These storms, as I said, can take different forms, and um, we fear these difficult circumstances of life, such as sick, and I understand why, I totally get it, I mean, none of us wants to hear bad news from the doctor that we've got a serious um, disease, and something, or some financial hardship, you've just been laid off, and uh, you're not sure what you're going to do, or a loved one, maybe a spouse, or even a child has just died, and and it's just devastated you. These are storms. If we allow them, we'll talk more about this in a moment. But these storms, if we allow it, can bring the Lord closer to us than we've ever experienced. Have you ever thought, and we talked about this last week, here Jesus is on the mountaintop, right? And they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. He's God. Why didn't he just beam himself like, you know, Star Trek. Why didn't he just beam himself from the mountaintop into the boat? He wanted to come to them, right? Why did he have to walk on the water to get to them? Why not just, you know, materialize in the boat? Here's why I believe he did that. Because at that moment, the thing that terrified them the most was the sea. Now, you could fill in the blank whatever it is in your life. But he wanted them to understand the thing they feared most was nothing more than a bridge to bring him close to them. Whatever storm you're going through, if you look at it like that, it's a controlled test to teach you about the strength and faithfulness of your God. And if you allow it, it becomes a bridge where the Lord will come to you in a way you never thought possible. It will deepen your relationship with Him to a degree you've never imagined. We know how that after six or seven, eight hours of fighting the storm... When the disciples were, again, weak and exhausted and had given up pretty much all hope of ever making it through this storm, Jesus comes walking to them on the water. I think it was Mark who tells us that they were so preoccupied with the circumstance, they didn't really see him at first. In fact, he was starting to walk past them. So what is that all about? It tells us that God is trying to come to us, but if we get so focused on the circumstance and the problem and the situation before us, if that becomes such the focus... We're going to miss the Lord. We're going to miss him. Now they finally saw him and thought he was a ghost. Okay. When he identified himself, remember what he said? Why are you fearful? I am. The name of God. Remember me. Did I not tell you to go over the sea of Galilee? If I tell you to go over, how is it you think you're going to go under? If God tells you to do something, He's going to give you the power and the grace and the time to finish the work. And if he has told you to go over, you're not going to go under. They needed to be reminded. They were so focused on the situation. And because of it, they had lost all objectivity, all perspective. And now all, all their hope was gone in all. And here Jesus had to remind them, here, here I am. Uh, I've been watching the whole thing, I got it under control. Don't fear. Trust me. Remember the great I am? Well the whole experience strengthened their faith by elevating their awareness of who he was. Again, he's preparing them. He's got to prepare them. They're going to be taken over soon. And um, through this experience as their understanding of his person and awesome power was expanded the result was their worship was deepened. Matthew fourteen thirty three. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Sounds like they thought maybe he's the Son of God, but now all doubts are gone. Their faith is growing. Guys, these storms are tests conducted under the control and watchful eye of God, and then only for a specific purpose of, t- excuse me, and then only for a specific period of time to accomplish his purposes. Remember what uh, what uh, Peter said in 1 Peter 5.10. He said, May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, after you've gone through one of these storms, may he perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. The storm is not going to go on indefinitely. It will come to an end. Okay, I'm so glad. I forgot if I told you this or first service, so if I repeat myself, pray for me. Uh, I'm so glad that David said in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm walking through it like the storm. You're going through it. It won't last forever. And God is using it to teach you but he'll bring you through it, okay? One author put it well. He said, and I quote, there's a common fallacy that we often hold to thinking that if I am in the will of the Lord, if I'm obeying the commands of Jesus, my life should be a piece of cake. (laughs) That I I shouldn't have any problems. Uh, I shouldn't have any troubles. I should always have calm seas with the wind at my back because after all, I'm doing the will of the Lord. Let's think about that for a minute. Let's think about Jesus, in doing the will of his Father there in Gethsemane, as he was facing the cross, you remember his prayer. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And submitting to the will of the Father did not bring the wind at his back and a calm sea. It brought the cross. Oftentimes for us, the will of God is not an easy thing. It, may, it many times is a very difficult thing. And I face adversities when I seek to do the will of God. So often I'm going against the tide when I seek to do the will of God. But Jesus is watching over us, interceding, and will come to our rescue when we have learned the lessons he wants to teach us. And then he quotes 1 Peter 5, verse 10 again. Look, storms or trials are only for a while, and they're being used by God to strengthen us and to grow us. And then he will let the storm pass and we'll be settled again. So first of all, he sends us into the storm to give us necessary correction. Number two, he sends us into the storm to further our perfection. Number three, he sends us into the storm to give us a new direction. And first and foremost on the list, he will use these storms to direct a person into salvation. Into salve- That's where it all starts, right, guys? Everything God wants to do in your life and through your life has to come. The beginning point is getting saved. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 107. You, you can turn there. Psalm 107, starting with verse 23. Now, the psalmist, in this passage, is talking about how God uses literal storms at sea to touch these hardened sailors. And they're pretty hard guys, okay? Verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters... They see the works of the Lord and his His wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. In other words, God is a way of touching these hard-hearted sailors by actually putting them through some literal storms, right? And they're real tough guys until the storm is going on and the, the ship is like getting tossed around like a cork. And, um, and it says their soul melts because of the trouble, all right? They, they get a little soft about it. Verse 27, they reel to and fro and stagger like, a, stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then, see, then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distress. It was all designed by God to bring them to a place of salvation, uh, breaking them. And humbling them, you know, when you think you're facing death and you think that it's just, just, you know, there's no atheist in a foxhole kind of a thing. Uh, you know, the psalmist is saying, look, when these guys are on, you know, in the sea and, and, and these storms come, and it's so, uh, it looks like this is going to be it. You know, people get a little soft-hearted toward God, you know, and they want to cry out to Him for help. It, it reminds me, guys, about God used a literal storm... Uh, to direct John Newton, the infamous uh, slave trader, into salvation. Let me read you what one author said about John Newton. He said, and I quote, John Newton was one of the biggest sinners and reprobates that ever walked on the face of the earth. You don't want that in your tombstone, right? He was an experienced sailor and navigator. But his cursing and blaspheming turned even the hardest sailors' ears red. He had one thing in his favor. A godly mother who told him about the Savior when he was young and continued to pray for him all throughout his years of sin and rebellion against God. Parents, take note of that. Take note of that. One day, John signed on with a slave ship leaving from Africa with a load of human cargo. He ridiculed the moral and poked fun at the religious. He even made jokes about a book that would eventually help reshape his life, The Imitation of Christ, written by Thomas a Kempis. In fact, he was degrading that book a few hours before his ship uh, sailed into an angry storm. That night, the waves pummeled the Greyhound, spinning the ship one minute on top of a wave, plunging her the next into a watery valley. John awakened to find his cabin filled with water. The side of the Greyhound had collapsed. Ordinarily, such damage would have sent the ship to the bottom in a matter of minutes. The Greyhound, however, was carrying a buoyant cargo and remained afloat. John worked uh, at the pumps all night. For nine hours, he and the other sailors struggled to keep the ship from, from sinking, but he knew it was a losing battle. The constant wind rocked the boat so forcefully that the sailors had to tie themselves to the deck to keep from being swept overboard. At one point, several of the crew tried to throw Newton overboard. They figured that God was punishing him like Jonah of the Old Testament, so that's pretty bad when sailors want to throw you overboard, because you're too bad. Finally, when his hopes were more battered than the vessel, he threw himself on the saltwater-soaked deck and prayed earnestly, God, if you're true, make good your word. Cleanse my vile heart and have mercy on us all. John didn't deserve mercy that night, but he received it. The Greyhound and her crew also survived. Uh, After four weeks of storms and constant brushes with death, the ship limped into an Irish port John Newton, former free thinker, former slave trader, and atheist, declared his faith in Jesus. He became a well-known preacher and composer, an abolitionist, a theologian. guy was incredible. In fact, the author says, we chiefly know him as the author of, a, of the hymn Amazing Grace, part of, part of which goes like this, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And guys, sometimes a person who feels I'm the captain of my ship, I'm the master of my faith, my fate has to be put through one of these life and death storms by God, where He allows them to go through, you know, such a painful and or fearful experience that they are broken of the rebellion, and eventually cry out to God to save them. So that's the storm of direction, directing people into salvation, but also God uses this kind of storm to direct a Christian into service. Yeah, unbeliever into salvation, but also Christians into service. And for this, I won't have you turn there because you know the story, how that in Acts chapters 27 and 8. Paul had been a political prisoner in Israel for a a couple years, and they were bouncing him around trying to extort money out of him, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, And eventually uh, he had had enough and said, look, I'm innocent, this is ridiculous, I appeal my case to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal his case to stand personally before Caesar. Well, uh, the governor of Israel had no recourse but to send Paul on a uh, ship uh, with the Roman garrison. To uh, Italy to eventually stand before Caesar. And you remember what happened. As they're going along, uh, they eventually sailed into a wicked nor'easter called Eurocladon, a typhoon there in the sea. And for two weeks, the ship was tossed to and fro. I mean, uh, nobody could eat anything. They threw out all the cargo, the tackle. Uh, and so on and uh, when all hope looked like it was gone an angel appeared to Paul one night and said to him Paul uh, you're going to make it all of the, the ship is going to be a total loss but not a life will be lost but you, you all have to stick together nobody can abandon ship because you know there were some guys that wanted to jump into the skiff and, and abandon ship and uh, Paul said to the captain if uh, these leave you guys can't be nobody can be saved they had to work together. And so the captain had the, the sailor cut the rope, skiff fell into the, into the sea, and they stuck, were, were stuck on this ship, and the storm kept tossing them, but it eventually blew them uh, onto the island of Malta where the ship run, ran aground. It was busted up by the waves, pounding on it, and everybody grabbed a piece of driftwood and they, and they, and they, and they swam to sea, to shore. All of them made it. Once they got there, the Bible tells us the natives were unusually friendly and began to take care of them. Well, uh, they stayed the rest of the winter there because it was not a great time to sail. So they waited until spring to set sail to to Rome. Uh, But during that time, Paul had a chance to minister to these people, and eventually a church was started all because of a storm that redirected them to an island where hearts were open, And God knew that, of course. Hearts were opened. And God said, Paul, you're going to Rome, but it's a little detour. Let's get you over here in Malta. There's a lot of people who need the gospel. And he did that. A church was started. And uh, a church that I think I've checked on is still going today. Still going today. Sometimes God will use these storms to redirect us. I was reading a story. uh, uh, This was going back, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, there's many stories like this, but I just remember this one. Of a man who was a Christian and owned a company. I was doing fairly well. I mean, it was a great company and doing well. And he made six figures. And back in late 80s, that was that was really good money, right? And Christian and so on. But one day, for no apparent reason, the business steadily began to decline. And over the next few months, it got so bad. And of course, the owner Christian is praying, God, please, what's going on here? We we need your help, please, God, help us. We need business. Uh, the The business is just is 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 declining. Well. In fact, it eventually declined so much that it went broke. And, of course, the guy was heartbroken. He felt like God had let him down. God was not faithful. Why would you let... Lord, you built this business. You led me into this thing. I had employees. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, you took everything away. And why would you do... That? You know, that, we ask all these questions, right? But, but to his credit, he was a strong man of faith and didn't let the, um, the, the trial drive him away from God in fact, he allowed it to drive him toward God. And he began to seek the Lord constantly. And uh, after a few months, God opened the door for this man to actually become uh, a missionary. I forgot where. But uh, he was telling the story several years after this whole thing. He had been on the mission field for, I don't know, five, eight, ten years. And um, he said, when I owned this company, my walk was very superficial. I had all kinds of money. But you know what? I wasn't happy. Those material things don't make make you happy. It wasn't until God took everything away. I have nothing. I'm a missionary. I've never been happier. And the work I'm doing for the Lord, I've never been so fulfilled. Look, be open to God redirecting your life through the storm. Don't fear it. Embrace it. See what God has in it for you. All right? All right, so he sends us into the storm to correct, perfect, direct... He sends us into the storm finally for the purpose of prep, <laughs> preparation. Right? Correction, perfection, direction, preparation. God's storms are preparatory. They prepare us for the work God has for us in the future. We uh, read in Acts chapters 3 and 4 that about 18 months after Jesus fed the, the 5,000 plus men, and, uh, women and children, about 20,000 people with the, uh, uh, the bread and the fish, And then sent the disciples out onto the sea and they they encountered that storm, right? About 18 months after that, Acts 3 and 4, God leads Peter to preach, to feed actually, uh, the same amount of people, 5,000 men, it says, plus women and children. Peter fed them not with literal bread, but with the bread of life, Jesus Christ, even the gospel. And uh, thousands got saved that day. And right after that, The disciples encountered a storm. Now, in the Sea of Galilee, it was literal, but this was a storm of persecution that came upon them because. And I believe that what God did for them a year and a half earlier, you know, miracles happen and God works in powerful ways. Get ready because you're going to be persecuted, and the storm in the Sea of Galilee prepared them. That you know had that mindset now, right? Um, And so they were, uh, they were prepared by the storm. It was a storm of um, preparation, okay? Um, And um, the um, prior storm, as we said, um, again, he was building their faith because he was going to be leaving them soon. Well, by Acts 3 and 4, he's gone now. But uh, he was preparing them through these storms, uh, stretching their faith, strengthening their faith, Uh, building their perseverance to hang in there. But he also taught them something else through that storm. And here it is. Don't miss this. That so often the pain of today is preparing us for the work of tomorrow. So often the pain of today is preparing us for the work of tomorrow. Now, guys, this principle will only help you deal with a severe storm in your life if you're mature enough to accept it. So a lot of Christians who are not mature enough to accept something like this. They they hear about something like this. Well, God is putting you through this adversity because he wants to build your faith. He wants to use you in greater ways to help people. I don't want to help people. I want God to help me. That's the mentality, right? With we're, we're real carnal Christians. It's not about suffering so they can be like jesus to help others no it's all about well what's god going to do for me i'm i'm looking for my you know my hundredfold return and my mansion my nice car a successful that's what they've been promised and that's what they want right only a mature believer in christ understands that the whole purpose of their christian life is to be used by god to touch hurting and broken people and you're never going to be able to relate to them or they to you if you and i don't go through trials where they can relate to us, right? I mean, that's the very definition of ministry. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 5. God allows us to go through trials, adversities, and then brings us through it, comforts us through the trials that we can then be turned around by him and sent out to help others going through the very same trials by giving them the comfort that God gave to us in our trials. That's ministry. There's a story I want to share with you. I've shared this story with you in the past, but every time I teach on this subject, this story is one of the most powerful examples of what I'm about to tell you I've ever heard. It's about a young woman who, at the time, was about 16 or 17 years old. Her name is Erica Fye. Now, my wife knows Erica's mom. She's met Erica, and uh, this is a very strong ministry family. Erica's parents are, are very strong Christians. Erica, at the time, don't miss this. At the time of this story, where the story begins, Erica, 16, 17, was a very strong Christian young lady, really walking closely with the Lord, right? She lives in the Bronx, uh, lived in the Bronx, and was on her way home from school one day when a group of gangbangers jumped her, dragged her into an alley, and gang raped her. At that point, she could have gotten very angry with God. She could have said, well, God, if this is how you protect your kids, then I want nothing to do with you. I'm your child. I'm living for you. I love you and so on. And this is what you will let happen to me? I'm done with you, God. She didn't do that. Her faith was very strong. And she believed that God was on the throne. God was sovereign. And whatever he allowed in her life, he had a purpose. And she just believed that. She gave it to God, the situation. And she forgave these young men. I think they were arrested and uh, prosecuted. But she forgave them. Her witness was so powerful in the way she handled this that her sister, raised in a Christian home but had not received Christ and had gotten into witchcraft, saw how Erica handled this and her sister got saved and became a solid Christian. A few years later, God laid on Erica's heart to go to Africa to minister. And so she hooked up with a ministry that we support, far-reaching ministry, which deals a lot with Africa, and uh, she was accepted and they sent her over there. She was, had a burden to work with this one tribe, and so did a couple other people that uh, she actually wound up meeting over there, and um, they wanted to minister to this tribe, but this tribe had an initiation uh, whereby you couldn't come and go and be kind of a part of the tribe unless you went through this initiation. What was it? They all had to drink a bowl filled with animal blood, urine, maggots, and some other things I forgot. I blocked out. It was too horrific. Uh, you, You can't imagine what was in this bowl. The tribe figured, look, if you're willing to drink this and you can hold it down, you're worthy to be one of us. The first two people tried, and they they just vomited. They couldn't do it. Erica prayed, God, I know you've led me here. Lord, I can't do this. You're going to have to give me the grace to do this. I can't drink this. And so God gave her the grace, and she downed the whole thing, and the tribe accepted her. And then she started working with the women of the tribe. And realized that they had all been gang raped at one time. And when they heard that Erica had been gang raped, it instantly opened their hearts to her and they were able to they received from her and many of them got saved. All because of God working in one young woman's heart who didn't turn on God, who didn't think that serving God was going to be easy. The last time I taught that story, I was in Matthew 14, the same passage, right? Parallel passage. I was at home going over my notes before I was going to leave to come to church. I went over my notes for the last time, got to the last page, and the Lord spoke to me and said, tell Erica's story. Okay? I wrote down, tell Erica Phi's story. Now, I wasn't sure God had spoken to me. It seemed pretty clear. He didn't send an angel who announced it audibly, you know, with the harps going and, uh, you know. uh, But... I really believed in my heart. God had told me he wanted... I didn't even think about that story until he told me share Erica's story. Scribbled up my notes and came to work again, not really knowing if God had really spoken to me. When I got to church that morning, I saw an envelope on my chair. Now, oftentimes ministries get confused, Uh, they confuse our meeting address with our mailing address. And so once in a while, stuff gets mailed to the building here that really should be mailed to us. And one of the staff graciously comes down and puts it on my chair. I picked it up, not knowing what it was, opened it up, took it out, and there was a picture of Erica. And she signed it, Erica Phi Clay in the Hands of God. I thought, that's perfect. That's what we are. She accepted it. She received it. And God used her. Lord, I'm just a lump of clay. Whatever you have to do to make me, <laughs> mold me into the image of Jesus that you can use me in this world for you. That's what I want. Look, trials can make us bitter or they can make us better. It all depends on how we receive them, right? Let me just quickly end, okay? I know that some of you might be thinking to yourself, but Pastor, you don't know how long I've been struggling uh, in this storm against, I don't know, alcohol, drugs, uh, an unsafe husband who makes my life miserable. I've been praying for him for years or whatever, a rebellious teenager that's left the home and has gotten into s- with some bad people, and I can't sleep at night worrying about him or her and so on, and it's just eating us away uh, inside. I've cried out to the Lord, but he seems like he's nowhere to be found. Can I direct your attention back to John 6, verse 17? The disciples were in the Sea of Galilee, and it was dark. And it says that Jesus had not come to them. And maybe you are are in that exact spot right now this morning. Whatever storm you're in, it's dark, it's scary, it seems hopeless, And Jesus seems to be nowhere to be found. Whatever this thing is, it just came suddenly out of nowhere. And now everything seems dark and hopeless. When Jesus started walking towards those disciples on that sea, he had to walk four miles before he got to them. Think about that. He was walking toward them long before they saw him coming toward them. And he got to them, because God's timing is perfect, he got to them exactly when they had given up hope, where they were as far out, in the sea, they were absolutely in the middle, when they had given up all hope of the situation or problem ever being fixed, he came to them. And guys, let me just say this to you, he will come to you too. He will come to you too. It's hard to embrace a storm, isn't it? It's hard to embrace uh, adversity or some kind of heartache. It's it's hard. We don't want to embrace it. We hate it. We want to reject it. We want God to fix it. I don't have time. You can read John 16, verses 22, I think 23, 4. Remember Jesus said I'm going, I'm going away soon you can't follow me he said and you're going to be deeply sorrowful but your sorrow is going to be turned into great joy so hang in there what was he talking about going to the cross right and when he was crucified on that cross and they saw him die Their sorrow was so profound. All hope was gone. And yet their sorrow was turned into great joy three days later. Here's the principle. We want God to fix the problem. As parents, when our child breaks a toy, we often don't sit the child down and explain, well, um, sometimes in life things get broken. You know, you have to deal with it. Now, what do we do? We run out to the toy store and buy him a new toy. And we bring that mentality into our uh, adult life with, our, with the Lord. Lord, my toy got broken. Will you, will you please buy me a new toy? Okay? Uh, and, and God doesn't turn... He doesn't... It's not substitution. It's transformation. He doesn't take away the bad and give us good. That's what we want. He takes the bad and transforms it into good that the same thing that brought pain is now bringing great joy like erica discovered and like we if you don't get that principle nailed down in your head you are going to always be wanting god to substitute good for bad and that's so so many christians never grow up because in their minds that's how god has to work God, I don't like, I'm sick, I want to be healthy. Uh, I, I don't have this kind of car, I want you to give me one. Instead, we ought to be saying, Lord, you don't substitute the good for the bad, you take the bad or what we think is bad, and you transform it into something that you can use for your glory. If you don't get that nailed down, your Christian life is going to be very frustrating and you're going to go through your Christian life angry at God most of the time. That's all I can say. May God give us the grace to embrace the storm, to learn in the storm, and to allow God to use the storm to use us in the future for greater things for His glory. Father, we thank You for Your Word. A lot here to digest A lot of profound principles we need to understand. Give us grace to do that. And Lord, when a storm comes our way, instead of fearing it, give us the grace to say, no, it's just a bridge. Whatever it is, it's only a bridge that you're going to come to me in a way I never thought possible. I'm going to know you in a deeper way when it's all over. Give us all the grace to understand that, Lord. And to use the storm and the lessons we've learned through it to report for duty and say, well, God, I've been through this training program. Now can I be used by you uh, in ministry in a greater way? Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask that you would keep blessing these studies in your word in Jesus' name. Amen.